Welcome again. My name is Matt Schneider. I'm one of the uh, clergy here on staff, and I work closely with the newcomers ministry, sort of pastor for newcomers, among other things. Um, so I'll be here the whole time. I teach a handful of the classes in the series, um, but I've invited some other people to come in and teach on topics that they're, they have some expertise on. The things that I teach on, I might not have expertise on. I'm just teaching it anyway, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't get somebody else. But um, that's not true entirely. But uh, um, you know, I hope that you'll stick with this for the series of the fall. It it, it works well to kind of keep coming, uh, especially just for the social nature. I hope you all get to know each other uh, in the margins. Um, I'm not gonna. We used to kind of go around and everybody introduce themselves. I'm not gonna do that for two reasons. I'm an introvert and I get it, you know. Um, and number two, like we just are so short on time. I feel like. You know what Gauvage is uh, in France? They feed the, the ducks to create the, um, what is it called, pâté? I feel like we're doing Gauvage with you, like force-feeding you information. And so to, to waste time, not waste time, but to sort of take time with some other things, I'm always getting super anxious. We used to have program staff come in at each meeting and sort of introduce their area of ministry. And that's why we're going to do the, the lunch in November is to have them all come there and give their sales pitches. But if you don't know about all the ministries at the church, of course, you can always kind of go on our website. But the magazine does have in the back uh, information about the, the back third of the magazine's information about the church. Um, <clears throat> before we get started with the teaching, though, let's say a prayer. And this is the uh, prayer for the, the first Sunday of Advent. And since we're the Cathedral Church of the Advent, I thought, even though it's out of season, it would be a good one to say. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when we shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost now and ever. Amen. Um, so today's topic is uh, Protestant Anglicanism, um, which one of my colleagues said boring when he saw that title. But, um, you know, I figured to start, we ought to talk about the denomination in which we rest. But... I'm going to talk about a particular aspect of our denomination. Uh, we're, of course, a member church of the Episcopal Church, which is predominantly in the United States, but it has uh, it, it spreads even to other countries uh, within the context of what's called the Worldwide Anglican Communion, which has its historic roots in the Protestant Reformation in England. There really was no Anglican Communion until quite recently. Uh, uh, through missionary activity and, uh, you know, the United Kingdom was huge in terms of its colonial uh, reach and therefore any sort of colony of the United Kingdom uh, was a member of the Church of England. So their their ministers were, were uh, ministers of that church. And when those countries like the United States in 1776 broke away from England, we, you know, we had this church and wanting to keep its heritage. <clears throat> and then... Uh, but, but be its own what's called province, and uh, through the course of time, it sort of worked itself out. You know, we're not the only one. Places like a lot of countries in Africa and Asia, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, 
South India are, are, are member provinces of the Anglican Communion that have their own sort of governing bodies and are in communion with the Church of England, primarily through uh, what's called the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the sort of the um, what they call the first among equals. Uh, he's sort of the the uh, the sort of seen as the ethical head of the Church of England, but therefore also um, uh, the, the Anglican Communion. <clears throat> but he basically has no power. <laughs> he only has power in terms of the the the, uh, the ability that people have uh, trust in him. Um, and so we, of course, uh, the the Episcopal Church has its history not just back to 1776, and really its founding in 1789 but hearkening back to England and the, what the colonists brought over here. So maybe you have some uh, knowledge about this stuff. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm trying to sort of keep it middle of the road if, in terms of like maybe you know a lot of this and uh, it's redundant for you. Hopefully it's still kind of interesting and maybe it's all new to you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep it understandable. But... Uh, Anglicanism, uh, as I said, in terms of the Protestant Reformation, uh, the, the, the joke that people often say is, well, really, the Church of England got its start because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. You've probably heard that before, if you know your sort of English uh, history. And that's kind of a half-truth. It's kind of a half-lie. Um, you know, and the, the reality is that the Church of England... Um, it's a, it's a political animal. Uh, there is not separation of church and state in the way that we have here in the United States. So the, the church was uh, increasingly uh, wrapped up in the politics of the country. Uh, and so when Henry VIII uh, married his uh, first wife, Catherine of Aragon, she was actually the widow of his brother. Uh, and um, he used he wanted to divorce Catherine because he wanted to have a son, and she was having daughters, Anne, uh, not Anne Boleyn, but Elizabeth being one. Uh, and then he, uh, you know, he wanted to have an uh, an heir to to sort of carry on the kingdom. So he's anxious about that, and then the Pope had to annul his marriage. Uh, and the Pope in Rome, uh, because the Church of England was part of uh, the Holy Roman Empire and also the church in Rome. There was no quote-unquote Roman Catholicism in the way that we know it. There was the church and the Pope was in charge. And he, uh, if, a, if a sovereign king wanted to have a divorce, the Pope had to annul the marriage and won it. Um, and so on some technicalities around the idea that Catherine of Aragon was uh, his brother's wife first, um, the, the, he sort of had the marriage annulled within his own jurisdiction of England, sort of saying, you know, thumbing his nose at the Pope in Rome and saying, I'm going to do whatever I want. And so that really created a breach both politically and religiously in England. And so the roots, of course, there uh, in terms of the breach from Rome have its political <clears throat> side. But something else was happening at the time. Um, uh, things like the the printing press uh, were recently created, so information uh, could more quickly travel. There is also, uh, even dating back into the 1400s, some people who uh, were protesting. They weren't Protestants in the way that we understand it now, but they didn't agree with the teaching of uh, the, the the papal church, uh, and some of these people were martyred, like. Uh, John Huss, 
Um, and so there was some new teaching happening where people were questioning uh, the teaching of Roman Catholicism, as it were, at the same time that Henry VIII had his divorce. And so some of that teaching came into England, uh, especially through uh, what was uh, happening in continental Europe uh, in Germany, Lutheranism. Uh, and some of the, the scholars and uh, clerics in England were <clears throat> paying attention and discussing this stuff. Uh, often in secret uh, because they were worried about what would happen to them. Um, and uh, so because there was this break from Rome politically, they started, I mean, it didn't have, it didn't take a foothold very quickly because Henry VIII didn't change his mind religiously. He was still basically Catholic. His, his understanding of the faith didn't really change. Uh, but because the break happened politically, uh, some of the people uh, like Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and some other scholars were able to, to try out some new things, dabble with some stuff. And one of the biggest changes that happened, this alone, worship changed and the Bible changed from Latin into English. Which, you know, you think about like uh, uh, in terms of the Protestant Reformation, well, that's just one thing on a list, but that's huge. That's massive because you have to understand that these people had no idea. The people on the ground were not speaking Latin, you know, I mean, they were speaking English or German or whatever. Uh, and so the Bible that's being read to them and the worship that's happening that they're spectating, except for in one place, at a very small part in baptism and in marriages where people had to sort of exchange vows, they allowed the vernacular, but everything else was in Latin. And so the, the teaching they couldn't quite understand. Um, and, uh, and unless, you know, you're, you're, uh, unless you speak Latin or read it. Um, and uh, so that happened. Uh, Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer was an archbishop. He started creating uh, worship material in English. The first thing being what we call the Great Litany, um, which you'll hear in Lent often, um, and then eventually put together a prayer book. The first book of common prayer uh, happened not under Henry VIII, but his very young son, Edward VI. When Henry VIII died, his very young son, who's Anne Boleyn's son, after he got his divorce with Catherine of Aragon, he married a woman uh, named Anne Boleyn. Uh, and finally, they had children. He killed her and a bunch of other wives, too, after that. Um, but uh, that was the son, so he became the king, and he was very young. And so some of these uh, men who were his handlers, who are now sort of Protestant, now's our time. You know, now we can start changing things. Uh, and so they did. They created the first book of Common Prayer in 1549, translated in English. And a lot of it really was uh, from one of the, the sort of rites in, in an area called Salisbury in England that they translated from Latin into English. There were some changes made uh, based on uh, Protestant theology, but minimally. And then again made another translation, which was definitely had a much more Protestant flavor in 1552. But then Edward, who is very young and sickly, died, unfortunately. And his sister, older sister Mary Tudor, who was Catherine of Aragon's daughter, came into power. And she was uh, Roman Catholic. <laughs> And no bones about it. And so uh, things uh, dramatically changed quickly. And people like Cranmer were killed, burned at the stake for what they're doing um, because she disagreed with it and was uh, trying to coerce what's happening, not only politically, but religiously. 
Um, and so that 1552 prayer book barely breathed um, because she came into power, I think, in 1553. Um, and then uh, is in power for several years. And finally, her, her sister, uh, Elizabeth, uh, who's... Uh, uh, she she's now uh, definitely Protestant, but not uh, extremely so, uh, but doesn't agree with her sister Mary and reverses what Mary's reversal was. Are you following me? All this drama? I, if Maybe you've seen Tudors on HBO or whatever it was. Uh, you know, fast forward the nasty bits, but, you know, you probably... <laughs> Showtime, that's what it was. It really was made for Showtime. Um, but uh, if, if you watched that or have heard any of the history, you probably uh, have a schema for what I'm talking about. I'm not going to give you tons more history because that, that, uh, uh, it's important to know, like, Henry VIII, uh, it's not important to know. You know, I mean, whatever. Like, you can forget this. That's fine. I'm just sort of trying to give you a taste of what our heritage is. But Henry VIII, Edward VI, finally changes made, but very briefly, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, kills all these guys and... Uh, brings uh, people, um, some uh, Roman Catholic uh, in inquisitors, basically, from Spain in to sort of change things for a very short period. And then her sister, Elizabeth, comes into power, and then she reverses the reversal of the reversal. And it's Protestant again. And she's in power for a very long time. Uh, you know, Virginia, the state, is named for her, the Virgin Queen, because she never married. Uh, and uh, in Anglicanism really kind of got its foothold under her. Uh, because of all that high drama, the back and forth that was happening beforehand, everybody killing each other, uh, and not enough time for things to kind of settle. And uh, what it was happened and under her reign is what's called the Elizabethan settlement. And she's trying, remember what I said, that it's both political and religious, and she's a queen, so she's trying to maintain stability in her country. She's got people of sort of more Roman Catholic stripes in her country that she wants to appease them. You know, she wants them to be members of the Church of England. Uh, so to the extent that it could be minimally Protestant and not extremely so, and on the other hand knows that she doesn't agree with extreme Protest Protestants, Puritans, or Anabaptists. Uh, and so um, some things happened. A new prayer book came in, uh, 1559, and then uh, was created a document called the 39 Articles of Religion, which was sort of brewing with people like Cranmer. He created actually a 42 Articles of Religion as sort of a confession of faith. And um, the worship again back into English, Bible read in English. But they had all these uh, ministers on the ground who, you know, they're going through all this back and forth, and they're not well trained. And so they can't, they're not trusted to preach the gospel, uh, the message that's coming from the Protestant movement. And so uh, what was also created is what's called the Book of Homilies, where they gave these guys books of sermons to read if they were not trusted to preach. And so in church, they actually had to read these sermons read by other people. And I tell you all this because uh, sort of in terms of doctrine, documents, Anglicanism, the Book of Common Prayer historically uh, um, uh, the 39 Articles of Religion and the Book of Homilies is where you find um, the sort of uh, doctrinal uh, theological heritage. And uh, especially under Elizabeth, uh, it was clearly Protestant. But then Anglicanism has 
because remember what I said about Elizabeth, she, they made it clear, and I'll show you the 39 articles, they made it clear that it's Protestant, it's not um, ambiguous, it's just minimal, it's not uh, splitting hairs as finely as what you might find in more Calvinistic or confessional Lutheran um, denominations. And so it allowed people to say, yeah, yeah, I believe with that doctrinal statement and then sort of shoehorn it into their own belief. Are you following me? Or things were written in the prayer book about w the way churches look or what priests wore that were ambiguous. Uh, or Like uh, the chancels should be the way they always were. It would say in the prayer book. And then I mean, what, what did they look like? We have no photographs, you know? So it's, it, in that statement, it's sort of ambiguous. And so people who are sort of more uh, ritualistic, ceremonial, or have more uh, sort of Roman Catholic kind of understandings of faith were able to, to also operate within Anglicanism, uh, increasingly so, and, um, and that still exists to this day, uh, especially after Elizabeth. Uh, and then uh, there are also people who are much more evangelical and Protestant. The Advent falls in the more Protestant strain of Anglicanism uh, and our understanding of the gospel and what that means, uh, what Jesus Christ has done for us. And when we look back to the 39 Articles of Religion, the Book of Homilies, the first prayer books, we say that was what, well, that's why this happened, you know, and that we, we, we stand in light of those movements. Um, we don't agree with some of the more ritualizing approaches or things that, um, uh, that contradict uh, pretty explicitly some of the, the theological statements in the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, and uh, typically, the more Protestant face uh, of Anglicanism has been called low church. And typically, the more ceremonial, ritualistic, or Catholicizing face of Anglicanism has been called high church. Maybe you've heard that before. And some people will look at the Advent and say, that looks high church to me. But believe it or not, uh, if you understand the nuances of Anglicanism, we're actually low church. Um, and each class, uh, I'm going to try to recommend one book personally, and I'll ask some of the other teachers to recommend just one book based on the lesson. If you want to read more about all that I'm talking about, a former dean of the Advent. If you go out those doors to the left, immediately you'll see a portrait of Paul Zoll. Uh, he wrote this book actually while he worked here. Look at this, like Paul 20 years ago. If you know him, that's hilarious because now he has gray hair. Um, uh, looking very young. Uh, the Protestant face of Anglicanism. And he talks about all that I'm talking about. Um, uh, and um, the Protestant face of Anglicanism, believe it or not, is sort of the minority report, especially in the United States. Elsewhere, that's not entirely true. Um, um, so, uh, how am I doing on time? Okay, good. Uh, i got about 15 minutes. We won't always have time for questions. Again, with the, the, the shortness of time, I'll try to leave a few uh, minutes for questions, though. I've got a handout. Uh, good. Pass those around on that side. Pass those around on that side. You all know what memes are um, on the internet. Uh, uh, often people will take a photo of someone and then write on a really terrible font 
something funny to go with the image. Uh, and there's a there's a uh, Facebook group uh, site page whatever called Episcopal Church Memes, and this one came up a few days ago. And I thought I'm always it's funny I'm always up until the last minute of teaching like searching for something to bring in. And this came up and I thought perfect. Um, uh, it says uh, what's her name Kristen Wiig from Saturday Night Live. Uh, how high church Episcopalians react when someone says the Episcopal Church is Protestant. Uh, that was my experience in, in seminary. Um, but the Episcopal Church, uh, until quite recently, a couple deca- decades ago, was known as the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. PECUSA. Maybe you've heard that before if you've been around before. And then, uh, sort of, Around the time of the 79 prayer book, it started be- being called ECUSA, Episcopal Church, drop the P, Protestant, in the United States of America. And now, even more recently, probably in the last decade or so, it's just called Tech, the Episcopal Church. It's like the club. <laughs> <laughs> the Episcopal Church. Um, uh, and people will say Tech. If you hear that, that's what they're talking about. But, you know, actually, according to the IRS, what our name is, the Foreign and Domestic uh, Missionary Society, which uh, is, uh, I like that, um, uh, Foreign and Domestic Missionary Society, and had been known for years as the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. As a matter of fact, Lutherans, uh, 150 years ago, when they moved to the United States, if they're second-generation Germans, third-generation, and didn't speak German natively, the Lutheran church would say, go to the Episcopal church to get worship in English, because that's basically the Lutheran church in English. In sort of the Pennsylvania, New York area, that's what they were saying, recognizing that this is a Protestant denomination. But winds have changed. They always kind of were there from the beginning. And at, at, uh, at greater, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on sort of like who's in power and what's being allowed, sometimes it's led to civil war. You know that the, uh, the, the English Civil War in England had so much to do with these fights over theology uh, um, and uh, what was happening in the uh, 17th, or at least in mid 17th century. If you turn the page, here's a cartoon from the 1800s of a. On the very left, there's a high church clergyman in that sort of white robe and regalia, and the guy in the middle is a low church clergyman, and they're tugging on a book of common prayer. And the guy on the very right is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it says the Battle of the Rubric. Rubrics are the directions in the Book of Common Prayer often written in italics. Uh, And it says, this is the Archbishop of Canterbury says, My friends, my friends, you'll destroy that good old book of prayer between you. Uh, And so you can see even in a newspaper there are comics about this, the the fight over the understanding of... um, what is being uh, said in the Book of Common Prayer. And there's a sort of more nuanced explanation of it below. So all that to say, you know, Kristen Wiig with a meme, that's not the first time, you know, that we've been talking about this. It's been going on all along. 
Um, but the 39 Articles of Religion uh, I bring to you as something else to take home. And Paul, if you do pick up the book, I don't know if we saw it in the bookstore or not. We ought to. He does mention the 39 Articles. It's in our Book of Common Prayer if you have a copy or if you see it in the pews. It's in the very back in small font in an area called the Historic Documents. And it's still in the Elizabethan language, which can be kind of difficult to understand. Like You have to sort of do mental gymnastics. Uh, and, but uh, uh, this guy, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, Edgecombe Hughes, maybe, I don't know, uh, who is South African, uh, he wrote a version of the 39 articles in, quote, today's English, even though it spells savior with a U because it's British English. But the sort of these, thys, and thous, and some other funny word choices are cleaned up for modern ears. So I give that to you as a statement of faith that actually the, the the Cathedral Church of the Advent points to as a confession of faith, even if some of our brethren in the Episcopal Church do not, uh, we do. Uh, and uh, the first two pages are sort of a helpful preface there. And then the third page, it says uh, a restatement of the 39 Articles of Religion. You see that where it says, number one, the Holy Trinity. Um, and uh, they, uh, they're kind of in sections that are discernible if you study them, although the, the sections aren't clearly marked. The first several um, are sort of affirming the fact that we stand in an apostolic tradition, pointing to the earliest creeds of the church, like the Nicene Creed that we recite um, uh, in our church service, uh, and sort of the, the sort of general orthodox beliefs of who God is, who Jesus is, and what the Bible is that we believe in an actual resurrection, uh, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and then at the bottom you see that the, uh, with Article 6, they're starting to talk about scripture. Um, if you turn the next page, 6 and 7, still uh, with the creeds by 8. So that first 8 or so, or, um, we uh, stand in uh, apostolic orthodoxy with the earliest church, um, confirming some of the beliefs that even Roman Catholics believe as well. Uh, where we deviate uh, are in some of the articles of belief that come later. Um, starting at number nine, uh, original sin, for a little bit, these articles then start to talk about people um, and uh, our need for salvation. I want to say the thing about scripture, though. A big part, remember I said that the scriptures were translated uh, from uh, Latin into whatever the vernacular was. Martin Luther created a Lutheran ver uh, German version of the Bible. Uh, in the United States, uh, sorry, in England, it was uh, translated into English. Um, and so, so scripture is important for Protestantism in terms of that being the, the number one uh, place to find what we believe. First of all, all this other stuff stems out of it. And uh, so uh, that's important to highlight here in the 39 articles. But starting at 9 and then skipping to the page, we'll see a grouping uh, 9 through... Golly, I don't know. A couple pages till 18 uh, has to do with people. And these are where the real Protestant sort of reformational beliefs start to come out. And one that I'm just going to point out to you today, because this is, uh, how do you sort of say the most important? Uh, the first among equals, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, of the 39 Articles of Religion, uh, is number 11, justification. If you don't understand the topic of justification, uh, that's one worth studying. Um, uh, this is the place where uh, 
a lot of uh, blood was spilled uh, in the early 1500s and thereafter. Is how do we stand right before God? Does it have to do with us and what we bring to the equation, or was it done for us? And what does that mean? So number 11 says justification. It is not because of any good works or deservings on our part, but only by faith, which rests on the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are counted righteous before God. Therefore, the doctrine of our justification by faith alone is most edifying and full of strength and comfort. This doctrine is more fully explained in the homily on justification. Remember I talked about the book of homilies? That's what they're referring to. The homilies actually came out before the 39 articles, but they are, if you can, uh, sit comfortably for a while reading older English, a helpful exposition of the articles of religion, which is why they refer to it here. But to say the alone, say say this alone, justification super important because this this totally contradicted what the uh, um, the papal curia believed. Uh, and, and remember, if you know the history with Martin Luther, the big thing he was upset about, the 95 Theses on October 31st, he nailed the wall, was about something called indulgences, which had to do, was an example of what people could do to earn greater standing before God, um, acquiring uh, merits. And uh, that was the, um, the shot heard around the world in terms of the Protestant Reformation it had everything to do with justification by grace through faith alone. Uh, and so that article, and I'll kind of end there because the rest of it you can is helpful in terms of church order. It even gets into some political stuff because some of the they were also um, facing some uh, uh, beliefs from people like the Anabaptists who wanted to share uh, goods in common and the church in England was saying, uh, no, uh, you know, you don't have to, we don't have to live in a commune <laughs> to be Christian. You can have your own property. Um, uh, so there's some other things like that towards the end. But I just want to highlight justification today in terms of the Protestant face of Anglicanism and the Advent standing in that strain uh, being a really important uh, article of religion. And the few that follow after it also are helpful for understanding justification. Number 12, 13 has it in the title. 14, uh, 15, and probably even 16. Uh, gosh, 17 is helpful too. But uh, they're all related. They all sort of flow out of that article number 11. The, uh, the Book of Common Prayer always has been, and even in its earliest days with Cranmer, and uh, after him with 1559, uh, when Elizabeth came back into power, the, remember she was. How do we? How do we? How do we um, not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Uh, how do we ma- maintain sort of a, for pastoral reasons, a semblance of things being similar to what we knew, and yet clear about where we stand doctrinally? Because you know how it is. If you're in a church, someone moves the dang table. Everybody's up. You know, up in arms. You know, so if you move everything, <laughs> that's why that's why they're killing each other, right? And so, uh, so you know, like you know, stained glass windows are okay, that kind of thing. Like we're you know, we're not going to go that far, uh, but we want to be real clear about justification by faith uh, because that's a real important doctrine. So the thirty nine articles being uh, quite minimal, but also the prayer book tradition. Uh, 
isn't always, uh, in terms of its prayers, splitting hairs. Uh, and so you, someone could listen to the words or watch what's happening uh, during communion. And I've, I, people say this to me all the time. They're Roman Catholic. They come to the Advent and they go, oh, it's basically the same, you know. Uh, Robin Williams, uh, God rest his soul, you know, his joke was the Episcopal Church is Catholic light. Maybe you've heard that. And, and that's because, uh, you could listen to those words and again, you could, you could say like, well, that sounds like, um, the bread and wine are actually becoming Christ's actual body and actual blood. Uh, uh, but the 39 articles of religion say, no, that's not what's happening. Uh, that, that's what Jesus said at the Last Supper, and he meant it symbolically. But someone could go to the service and um, and say, oh yeah, like transubstantiation is happening here, if you know what that means. Um, but uh, the 39 Articles of Religion are helpful for clarifying where there's any ambiguity. And justification comes through... Uh, in uh, the prayer book uh, rites, if you're paying attention, if you understand this doctrine uh, through some of our colics, uh, you know, the colics for purity uh, at the very beginning of our service is, is an example of that. Um, um, so uh, uh, Protestant Anglicanism, not just Anglicanism, uh, but trying to focus on, on this strand. Uh, and there are other strands too. And that can be super confusing. But uh, I hope uh, that's helpful for understanding a lot about the Advent and what we um, uh, point to historically, uh, rely on in terms of making sense of things theologically. Uh, and I want to make clear to you because I want you to, first of all, understand this stuff and realize that these are the words of life, you know. Justification by faith, as this doctrine says, is of full strength and comfort. So comfortable. Just like the comfortable words, remember. I said justification comes through our, um, our prayer book tradition. After you confess your sins and hear the words of absolution, the comfortable words are read to you. Um, and uh, Whereas trying to accrue your merits is not comfortable. I mean, uh, trying to fly straight even in this life with your boss or your wife or your husband or your kids or whoever. I mean, you know what that's like. <laughs> Try to do that with God. <laughs> and that's what the Protestant Reformation was saying. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ uh, who, who did it uh, for us. And all these other classes hopefully um, will uh, elucidate what I'm talking about uh, in a more nuanced way. Um, if you look at what's coming up, I'm excited about it. Uh, Zach will really kind of pick up where I'm leaving off. If you missed his dean's class and you were kind of, uh, oh no, I'm missing Zach talking about worship. Well, guess what? He's coming back here next week to talk about the same stuff. Um, uh, worship in the prayer book tradition. He'll probably say things similar to what I said about justification, I hope, and how that comes through in our uh, prayer book tradition uh, with more authority than I have. Cameron Cole's going to talk about um, modern teachings out there in our culture that are super unhelpful. I'd say actually kind of heretical. Uh, we're often responding to what's happening in our current day. In the early church, they created creeds like the Nicene Creed because there were certain conflicts about the nature of God and the nature of Christ. 
In the Reformation, they created documents like the 39 Articles because of the conflicts they were having, and they're still super helpful for us. But what are the conflicts we're having in the 21st century? And uh, how do we take uh, our historic tradition and respond to them? That's what Cameron Cole, our youth minister, is going to talk about. And he sees this all the time because the culture affects the youth so much, so much. Uh, the nature of God, uh, Brandon Bennett, our young adult minister, is going to, I brought that up already. It's in the 39 articles, but who is God? Um, and then I'll follow that up with human nature. Who are we? You track in with, see how that's flowing with the 39 articles. And then the gospel of grace, the good news. And then the answer to the question of, okay, well, I'm justified not by my own works, but through what Jesus has done for me. What now? Doug Webster is going to talk about that in terms of the life of faith. And then uh, we'll wrap it up with Mark Gillette, who's a Bible scholar at Beeson, talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. How can we still trust the Bible as an authoritative document in 2016? And then I'll give you a taste of the history of this particular church since the founding of Birmingham. And hopefully we'll have this lunch or something with Andrew to give you the current vision of the Advent. Uh, what are we up to nowadays? Uh, well, thank you so much for coming. I hope you'll keep coming. I hope you'll invite friends who, uh, who, who need and want to hear these kinds of things. Sandy's your go-to person in terms of questions about anything logistical. She's happy to answer them for you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.